Welcome to Tangents. I'm Jerry Brito, Executive Director of Coin Center. And with me today, I'm very happy to have Daniel Rothschild, who is Executive Director of the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Uh, hello, Dan. Hey, Jerry. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Um, and if anybody detects uh, something weird here, Dan's a very good friend of mine. Uh, and so that's why this thing is going to be, you know, just sound awkward uh, the entire time. Um, Having a conversation with you that's fit for uh, uh, public release is, is a, a little bit of a strange feeling, but we'll have to yes. see how it goes. Yeah. So, um, Dan, the reason I um, wanted to have you on is to talk to you executive director to executive director. Um, so, uh, like you, I've spent my whole career in public policy and in particular in think tanks. Um so before starting Coin Center um, over six, just over six years ago, which is amazing, um, I was at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University uh, for almost 10 years. And before that, I was at the Cato Institute. Uh, and you, um, uh, this is your second tour of duty at Mercatus. And before that, you were at AEI, uh, the American Enterprise Institute. So I think you two um, you know, have been in think tanks basically your whole essentially your whole uh, adult career, right? Yeah, and, and I was at the R Street uh, Institute between the time I was at AEI and at Mercatus. So I've, I kind of had three different experiences in, in three very different uh, kind of intellectual research think tank environments. Okay. And I've done a, a whole bunch of different jobs within, within each of these institutions. Right. Um, and so I, you know, what I wanted to talk to you about, and I hope it's interesting to our viewers, is... We're in a really weird um, time, a uh, really weird moment for policymaking and for the things that think tanks do to try to influence policymaking. Um, so I just wanted to explore that with you. And um, maybe we could start off by you telling us, uh, you know, how does policymaking take place? Or maybe how did policymaking uh, take place? Um, and, and so start with that. Yeah. So, so I think that the the kind of old story, and and you know, all of these are are uh, stylized facts. They're stylized stories, so they're not a hundred percent true. But but it went something like this: you know, research would be done by academics, and it would kind of bounce around in the academy for a while. And academics would go to think tanks, or people in think tanks would read academic papers and start to think about how do you apply some of these ideas. And then then at some point, there was you know, depending on what metaphor you wanted to use, the Overton window shifted, or if you're into John Kingdon's kind of thing, the the policy stream went in such a way that ideas on, on particular policies could come out of think tanks and, and enter the public discourse. And this was either something where they were taken up by a, a particular politician or by someone who had the ear of politicians. So think of someone like, like Steve Forbes on tax policy. Uh, and then that became something that became a, a, a big policy issue and a political issue. And, and, and I use those two terms relatively interchangeably at this, this point in time, because you know, politics was to a large degree about the implementation of policy ideas. So you think back to the 2000 presidential election, for instance, you, you could I can tell you even now basically what Al Gore's policy positions were and what George Bush's policy positions were. And the debate that they had was to a large degree over those policy positions. So think tanks played this this important intermediary role between uh, the academy and between in, in implementation and public policy. Well, fast forward. Uh, the, the role that, that think tanks, as well as a lot of other intermediating institutions play right now, is, is completely different or in many cases non-existent compared to what it was 20 years ago. 
Um, I can't really tell you what the presidential election that uh, we just concluded uh, was based on in terms of, of policy differences, mm -hmm. uh, in terms of the major policy ideas that, that were put out uh, by, by the two major campaigns. I can probably tell you more about you know uh, uh, campaigns from from 100 years ago than from what we have right now. So we've seen this decoupling, if you will, between policy and politics, and this decoupling between academic ideas and the implementation of ideas. And all of this has made the, the position of think tanks um, uh, at, at worst precarious, but I, I think uh, in, in a more optimistic direction, up for grabs going forward. So if, the, if politics is no longer about policy, and I, and I concur completely with you, I mean, I guess we still, um, I, I guess policy is still enacted in the sense that government does stuff um, on a daily basis. And if that's, you know, and that stuff is policy. Um, but to the extent that, look, uh, when people are running for uh, Congress um, or, you know, the different arguments that they're having uh, in the discourse, as you say, in the pages of opinion, it's rarely these days, if you really take a look about policy, right? So if it's not yeah, about yeah. policy, what is it about these days? So, so my mental model of this, and, and I'm open to challenge on this, is that there's basically two different types of policy discourse. There's high policy discourse and there's low policy discourse. Uh, and, and these names are, are a little bit um, uh, perhaps incorrect. But, but high policy discourse is, this is the stuff that the media covers. It's the stuff that, that is basically, as, as Robin Hansen would talk about, the fighting about the cultural status of different groups. It's only secondary or, secondarily or tertiarily about policy. So we talk about things like, like for, for, for instance, uh, Second Amendment rights and, and gun owners' rights. Mm -hmm. We talk a lot about it in terms of policy, but a lot, or we, we, we like to think about it in terms of policy. But really, what it's about is is owning guns, is shooting, is hunting, is having a, a gun culture lifestyle, something that is acceptable in America. And broadly speaking, the right wants to say this is a relatively high status thing; it's acceptable. And the left wants to say your lifestyle is is unacceptable. You 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 can't be doing this kind of thing. Um, and and to make gun ownership a low status kind of activity. And yes, there are policies that that um, uh, uh, you know ha happened at the margin. But the through line of the last fifteen years is just not a whole lot has changed uh, in terms of gun policy at either the federal or the state level. So that's high policy. And then there's low policy. This is the stuff that the media doesn't cover. This is the stuff that most politicians don't know actually very much about. This is the stuff that actually has an impact on people's lives. Uh, this is the stuff that where where you actually can see. Uh, uh, positive some solutions. Uh, and, and, and this is really where think tanks continue to shine. This is where having specialized expertise, for instance, in things like fintech and, and, and blockchain technology, that really matters. Uh, I don't think that, that in any, any time in the near future, we're going to see the, the major journals of opinion, major presidential candidates staking out detailed policy platforms around Bitcoin and the blockchain. But the work that's happening here is really, really important. And it's in the, the kind of low politics realm of things. Right. So in the high politics, to the extent that um, uh, Bitcoin or cryptocurrency would get covered by the media, be part of the, the discourse, and we'll, and we'll get to that maybe in a minute, um, it's going to be there is this hack or there, you know, um, there are these drug markets, um, here are these bad things. Once in a while, it might be some feel good story. Um, uh, but that's generally, generally going to be it where the nitty gritty about what are, okay, well, given that there's good stuff and there's bad stuff and we have to balance these things, where do we set the dials on which thing that doesn't get covered and nobody runs on that, right? And nobody in Congress calls a hearing to, to 
talk about that. And nobody in Congress gives a speech about those things. They give a speech about the high policy. Uh, right. And, and the high policy stuff is basically whether or not blockchain and Bitcoin entrepreneurs should be high status or low status, whether or not they are, are great innovators who are, are helping to develop the, the next technology that's going to have economic ramifications or, you know, whether or not, you know, you wave your hands and talk about uh, the dark web or whatever else. So why? OK, well, where does that come? Where does this high status, low status come from? Why? Why do you? OK, why? I mean, that, that's a great question. If, if you talk to someone like Robin Hanson, again, this is something that the politics has, has always been about. It's been about the varying status of different groups. But, but I think that, that uh, and, and there has always been this kind of status thing that's been built up in, in the policy debate. So, so these two things have, have never, they, they, they've always been connected. But what we're really seeing is that they have been bifurcated. Uh, over the right. last, I don't know, five, 10 years, something like that, as politics becomes more about you know, you know, tribalism and entertainment and, and a lot of other stuff that, that you know, Martin Gurry and others have, have written about, the work of actually making policy still happens, but it doesn't happen in developing policy platforms for parties. Uh, right. A lot of that agenda setting, a lot of that developing policy ideas that can actually be implemented uh, is stuff that's done on the uh, on the think tank level or or by people in uh, in the, the intellectual research environment. Right. And I think that's that's really the story of the the Trump administration policy wise in a lot of ways. The stuff that was really high profile that he ran on yeah. in 2016, uh, you know, immigration, tariffs, trade. Um, he found very little think tank support on a lot of those things. But the stuff that that he ran on in 2020, the stuff that aren't you excited about what I did. It was regulatory reform. It was uh, healthcare, which was was a, a lot more uh, smoke than fire. It was judges. It was stuff that came out of think tank and think tank like institutions that were implemented at kind of the median level or the medium levels of the executive branch. So that policymaking did happen. It was just nowhere to be found in, in the 2016 uh, uh, presidential uh, race, and, and it certainly wasn't to be found in the, the 2020 GOP platform, which didn't exist. That's right. It literally didn't exist for viewers or listeners who don't know this. Uh, they they literally voted, the platform committee, I guess, voted not to adopt a platform. And it's just, I mean, because what's the point, right? We're not running on a platform anyway, right? Yeah. Uh, that's that's the low policy detail, and that'll be figured out by the think tanks and the deputy assistant secretaries. But that's not the stuff that gets people excited. It's not the stuff that turns out people for rallies. It's not right. the stuff that gets low dollar donors to open their wallets. Right. But I want to go back to low status, high status, or uh, relative status of groups. Um, again, why? Um, what does that mean? I, here's what I take it to mean, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that... Um, when we say that politics is about status, we, you're going way back to the savannah, right? And you're, and you're saying that you have, um, uh, you know, humans are tribal by nature and that it's in our nature to have, um, to try to uh, raise the status of our coalition or our group and to lower that of, the, of others. Is that your point? That it's, it's about human nature? Yeah, I mean, that, that that's something that's always been there. And, and politics has always been used um, to, to some degree for that purpose. What I'm saying is that in recent years, uh, it's been used much more explicitly and and almost exclusively, at least in, in, in some areas for that purpose. So that's really the difference that we've seen. So I guess. So how do you distinguish that from, uh, you know, Reagan versus Carter or Mondale? Right. Um it was much more about policy, right? Mm -hmm. Certainly about Cold War policy, foreign policy. It was also about tax policy. Um, 
uh, you know, lots of other things. So it was definitely about about, about education. It, so it was definitely about um, those policy ideas, and people could tell you what were the different policies that they were voting on. Um, but at the same time, you still had all the same kind of culture war stuff, didn't you? So I mean, what's different? Uh, yeah, you did, and it was always there, but but it was a lot more in the background. Um, yeah. And and the, the 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 groups that were part of different coalitions were much less likely to be associated with a, a couple of things. So so you have groups like the Reagan Democrats, where there, there certainly right. was a, a cultural play associated with that. But Reagan articulated a host of policies that he said would benefit the the, the Reagan Democrats, and and that's how he brought them over onto the team. It was it was not tribalism first, policy second. It was articulating a, a policy platform that got people to agree with you. But what we're seeing right now is that that if, if I know what you believe, for instance, about school choice, I can say with a very high degree of probability what you believe about taxes and abortion and guns and, right. and all sorts of other things. So we've seen these these hardening of these different things into 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 um, th these two different tribes, and they're just all at war with each other in the high politics side of it. The low politics side is still where there's a lot more opportunity to uh, bring new evidence to bear, to to engage in in you know liberal discussion and debate, which is what think tanks were meant to do, to to bring new data to bear, to bring new studies to bear. Uh, I can't recall a, a single major study or white paper or anything else that was was brought up in the the 2020 election, uh, but that stuff still does really matter. When you're working on on implementing, say, you know, uh, policies for emerging technologies like drones. So, um, so okay. So, why did it happen? Why was this there? This bifurcation. Um, and you know, I'll throw out something just so we don't. I think it's about the media environment, uh, almost completely. Um, I think it's about clicks. Um, uh, I think the high policy stuff. And uh, just where it be, it's funny you call it high policy, low policy, because I sort of think of um, like high culture, low culture, and it's kind of flipped where high yeah, policy. That, that's why I said culture. those names might be a little bit confusing. Yeah. 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 So um, the stuff that gets you. So we have turned um, politics into entertainment. Mm -hmm. And that once you accept that, that leads you to the result that you're describing. And then the question is, well, why did politics all of a sudden become entertainment? And it became entertainment because of the media environment changed. It used to be that you had three networks and a local paper and et cetera. And so there was no room and, and they had their certain incentives where you know politics was gonna be politics, um, but it wasn't gonna be entertainment. And now that you have a million channels and you have Twitter, um, it becomes, under, I mean, it, you can see how quickly it becomes entertainment. Yeah, and the, the, the business model of media, which Andre Mir has, has pointed out and, and really well chronicled, uh, has gone from, from manufacturing consent and the Walter Lippmann kind of sense of things to manufacturing rage. And right. so that, that feeds into tribalism. And, and I don't know where all of this started and, 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 and yeah. where it ended or, or what specifically is driving it, but I know that it does represent a, a fundamental challenge to the, the kind of business model of uh, think tanks compared to, to to what it was uh, five or ten or fifteen years ago. Okay, so where does that leave um, the people who are working in low policy, which used to be pretty well enmeshed in the campaigns, let's say, or in government, right? So again, if you think of the Romney Ryan campaign versus uh, the Obama Biden campaign, like both of these guys had binders and binders full of think tank people, right? Um, associated with them. And I think if you fast forward to this last election, 
that was not the case, certainly not uh, on the Trump side. Um, and I wonder even in the Biden side, the Biden side just kind of seemed to just be very message driven. Message was just like, just, you know, be cool. All right. Um, so where does that leave think tanks and people working at not just think tanks, right? But people working in the, in the low uh, policy, the details. So, I, I mean, I think that, that, you know, low policy is, as I said, this is a lot of stuff that really impacts people's lives. And so it is more important than ever uh, in a lot of ways. There, there really is no, um, uh, uh, you know, government equivalent of someone who's going to have the, the kind of deep expertise that a lot of people in think tanks have, whether it's on, on particular issues in foreign affairs or, or on tax policy or, or whatever it might be. You've got smart people uh, in government certainly working on these. But we saw this in, in the, the tax reform in what was 2017. I mean, that really did rely on a lot of work that had been done by think tanks and models that had been developed by think tanks. And, and the, the, the public debate on that was, it, it was interesting. It was a rare moment where kind of low policy invaded high policy, uh, because the media you know, had to pull away from talking about the Russia investigation or whatever was was pushing people's buttons and actually have people come out and cover uh, tax policy debates and you know explain what the distributional impacts were going to be and the growth impacts and all of that. And that's the stuff that the media would have absolutely loved to have done 10 years ago. And certainly there, there are parts of the media that still do that today. But in terms of what's driving the day at the New York Times or the Washington Post, it's, it's not this kind of tax policy work. And in fact, I think we've seen a lot of people who do really good work here, did really good work here in the media leave over the last few years for think tanks, for, for different startup ventures. But I think you got lucky with, with, with that particular um, uh, example that you use of the tax policy, the last tax reform, because you had um, uh, Speaker Ryan, uh, who was there, um, and you know, is is sort of, which is amazing to say of an older generation, right? And, and was able to bring that to bear. Um, I'm not sure that, so, okay. Um, I guess, I guess I put to, let me ask you this question. So, okay. I mean, maybe that, maybe that just was the last of the old guard. And like, that's the last major policy what? discussion that we're going to have. So, because I also think about um, think tanks um, and their relative status in the whole, in the grand scheme of things is being lowered because, you know, what gets all the attention is the politics of it. Um, and so I think that leads certainly many think tanks to chase clicks themselves and, and change what they're about. And so, you know, we won't name names, obviously. Um, but, you know, if you want to, like you, you sort of have to ask yourself. Um, so think tanks also have donors, and uh, the New York Times also has donors, um, right? Uh, and the New York Times is able to attract donors because it doesn't, you know, it, it kind of avoids the, the the low policy stuff, as you say. So I sort of see think tanks beginning to also try to attract donations by being engaged in stuff that, that is more high. So, yeah, a, a couple of things there. You know, one, the, the, the term think tank is, is necessarily incredibly yeah. broad and, and, and covers people and covers organizations that, that run the gamut from, from you know, effectively uh, totally independent research centers to what are, what are basically advocacy groups around a particular issue. So I'm, I'm kind of talking about the, 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 the smart group that's in the middle. 
uh, and, and and no need to name names, but it's kind of the the the, the smart group of think tanks that have smart scholars, broad networks. Um, have a, usually a broad base of donors, do work on a whole bunch of different issues, um, tradition, traditionally have a, a, a certain degree of uh, uh, intellectual heterodoxy within them. Um, that's one thing I think that people totally get wrong about most think tanks is uh, there's a lot of debate and disagreement within them, probably more than there is in a lot of university departments. And so they, they can be these kinds of uh, 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 fonts of idea generation where, where people uh, you know, argue about ideas and, and argue about policy and, and you, you, know, you end up with better, better products as a result. Um, so, but you know, what does this mean for uh, think tanks? You know, I, I, I talk a lot to other think tank executives, and, and there is this pervasive idea that uh, you know we got to get better on infographics, we got to do more Twitter, we got to uh, tweet, we got to do videos. It's, it's all this kinds of stuff that people have been saying for the last few years, and I think it's just utterly mistaken. Um, there's no way that you're going to win any of this, uh, you know, win Twitter, twin, trend on Twitter, whatever it is, with the best possible ideas. I mean, what actually gets people's attention right now? What actually drives the kind of social media narrative? It's stuff that is not only adjacent to reality. In a lot of cases, it's totally uh, divorced from reality. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this, this is something that's happened on, on, on you know, both sides of the aisle over the last few years. Uh, and and pol- policy or you know, polling data suggests that uh, partisans on both sides have just like radically different views of what actual reality is. And, and there's n- honestly no video that we can make that is going to um, get people really excited about how reforming certificate of need laws is going to increase the supply of healthcare, lower prices, uh, and increase access in their state. Um, there is no way to make that something that is really exciting to everybody. But that is something that, that um, you know, you can engage and talk about through the kind of low politics means. And, and I think that in a lot of ways, there are more opportunities for, for uh, think tanks than ever to engage in these kinds of uh, real nitty gritty policy debates, uh, precisely because the media isn't trying to turn each uh, turn these debates into left versus right or R versus D or, or, or our team versus their team status narratives. So, okay, there's a lot there. First, I wanna go back to what you just said about what a think tank is. And you gave a very classical definition of a think tank where you're talking about it's these things in the middle. Um, uh, which aren't necessarily um, specific issue advocates and they're not, you know, and, and that they're heterodox, right? Universities without students, as someone once said about think tanks. But how many of those are left, right? And how many of those exist relative to the wide array of um, policy uh, generating institutions that have just you know, been uh, created over the years. And I'm thinking of like, uh, Tevi Troy had a great essay. Um, I forget the name, something about the- De- Devaluing the Think Tank. Devaluing the National, Think. National Affairs 2012. That's right. It's uh, uh, made a real um, impact on me. Um, you know, again, because their incentives change. Um, think tanks that, at, you know, at one time maybe were in the middle, as you say, um, you know, their business model changed. And so they began to um, sort of, uh, you know, equivocate here and there. And pretty soon um, they were something different, right? So they didn't have as much heterodoxy um, as you would want. Uh, You know, they became, you know, um, more careful about what they said because of the the incentives that, that they faced. So 
so that's you know so so i think are any real think tanks left is sort of one question and number two what is their relative status when you have so many of these other groups come up which you know call themselves think tanks um do things that are very think tanky traditionally think tanky um but you know it overwhelms uh the traditional ones yeah. So, uh, you know, first of all, I don't think that it's a bad thing that think tanks model has changed. Um, uh, it, the business model of, of you know, every elite institution is in the process of changing right now. And I think what universities are, what universities have as their business model is already not what it was 20 yeah. years ago. What uh, uh, prestige media institutions have as their business model is not what it was 20 years ago. So I think it makes sense for think tanks to come along with that. Um, I, I think that, that you know, look, everyone I know basically who works in think tanks um, believes in what they say. There's this idea out of Washington, yeah. outside of Washington, that people in think tanks are just paid hacks and that, you know, for an additional $10,000, you can get someone to go over from the Heritage Foundation to the Center for American Progress and make the opposite argument that they've been making. And like that, that is something that basically never happens. Um, people are engaged in the, the think tank world because they really care about ideas, because they like debating these kinds of policy ideas. They like doing the kind of deep but applied research that, that you can do in the think tank world. They, they like uh, seeing that they're having an impact. Um, and no doubt the entire world of philanthropy has changed over the last 20 years. So think tanks are just one institution that's supported by philanthropy. Uh, but but you, you, you see it across the, the board as well. So, so I don't think it's a problem that, that, that think tanks um, have changed as long as what they're doing is, is in, you know, intellectually consistent with their, their vision and mission. And they continue to be honest. Yeah, but um, so I, I definitely take your point. I th and I think it's worth highlighting because it drives me crazy when uh, people tell you, you know, somebody who's worked in think, think tanks my whole life, whenever somebody says that I say what I say about particular policies because I'm being paid to, it, it drives me bananas because it's not true. <laughs> and it doesn't, I mean, in what would be better for, even if you had a donor who wants a certain policy view to be put out into the world, what would be better for them? Would they want to hire somebody who doesn't believe what they're saying? will say it for money or do they want to hire somebody who passionately believes what they want to be said? And that's what's, that's what, that's the way it works, right? All of these groups, were you going to say something? Oh, no, no. If, if you know the policy that you want enacted, investing in a think tank is like the worst possible use of your money. Yes. If you have a vision of, of exactly what needs to happen, um, hire a lobbyist. Yeah, there, 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 there's there's nothing shameful about that. Lobbyists play an important role in the, the ecosystem of policymaking. So go out there and uh, support candidates and hire a lobbyist and and, uh, you know, via con Dios. Okay. Um, but if you're actually interested in the, 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 the process of ideation, that's where think tank uh, investments are, are uh, powerful philanthropically. Right. OK, but that gets to where I was trying to go, which is a Tevi Troy point, which is yeah. that think tanks. And, and because their business model is changing, um, they look a lot more like issue advocacy groups these days than simply universities without students, right? So they have GR departments that are trying to lobby. We can't say that, right? Um, but they but they do. Um, so it's not just about getting you know, new ideas on paper. It's about getting those ideas into law, right? And, and lobbying to do that. And it's about um, having a social media department, right? That helps in that process, but also gets attention. And if that's how 
the think tanks have changed and the um you know the 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 relative um uh, composition of the budget goes more towards gr and social media and media and whatever else and less to simply scholarship well it's it's not it's not okay that think tanks business model has changed right yeah, but I, I think you can probably count the number of think tanks on one hand who spend more on government affairs and communications than they actually do on on research and uh, uh, or, or you know in, in in our case at Mercatus and student programs. Right. Um, the, the intellectual work of think tanks is still what drives you know, every credible think tank. Uh, and and again, if if what you want to do, if you want to go viral on Twitter with yeah. the idea that you know that you have. Uh, there are many better uh, investments to make than than think tank Twitter accounts. So, I, I can't name a, a think tank Twitter account that is particularly influential or powerful or that has millions of followers. Yeah, right. get get Kim Kardashian to endorse you on Insta. <laughs> so, um, okay, so if you can't really tweet the low policy stuff uh, effectively, you know, to have any kind of effect that you'd want to have. Um, how do you, uh, c- you know, c- convey your ideas? So I think you can tweet it. Just right. don't make your measure of that tweet success, whether or not it gets 500,000 impressions and, and a hundred thousand retweets. Uh, if look, if I, I would rather tweet something to, and, and have it read by the eight people who are actually working on implementing an issue who actually matter, uh, than to, you know, have it be retweeted by 80,000 people who are paying no attention to it at all. So, so here's a way to think about it. When, when, when I was first at Mercatus, I was working on a, a project called Enterprise Africa. And we, uh, you know, we put out policy briefs based on field research done in, in sub-Saharan African countries. And we would send it to the people at the uh, relevant desk at USAID, at the nascent Millennium Challenge Corporation, the relevant people on the relevant congressional subcommittees, and a few people at state. So like we knew the universe of people who cared about you know, regulatory policy towards agriculture in Botswana or whatever. That was a known number of people, and we knew exactly who those people were. Um, it is still the case on some of these, these low policy issues that we know who these people are, and we know how to get ideas to them. It's on the high policy ideas where we no longer know you know, these are the particular people whose opinions matter here. Because in high policy, stuff kind of, uh, it's, it's an ecosystem that we, that we haven't made sense of yet. So on, on the, the, the low stuff, you know, being a think tank expert who's seen as one of the top few people in your area, uh, I think that, that still carries uh, exceptional uh, returns to it. Uh, really having that kind of expertise that you can develop uh, as a think tank fellow, that still matters for a lot of people. And I have a lot of colleagues who are, are viewed as you know, top five people on their policy issue. And they get calls from across the country, from, from uh, you know, state legislators, from people in governor's offices, from mayors, um, to, to talk about their, their areas of expertise. Yeah. And if I can say, I think the way to leverage social media, because I mean, we live in social media uh, these days, um, is not to institutionally try to, you know, create snazzy products that will go viral, right? Like, oh, we have to go viral. Yes. If you can, if you could only plan and execute on virality. Um but the way to do it is to is the scholars themselves or the people who are ideating is every field and subfield has its own Twitter. Yeah. And I think there's a way to responsibly participate in that. It's very hard, increase, increasingly hard, I think, depending on your field. Um, but I think that's a way to do it. And then as a result, I think um, you do become recognized uh, in your field. 
Um, and that's a good way to engage with others with different ideas, you know, et cetera. It's, again, it's, it's difficult to do responsibly oftentimes because of the nature of social media. Uh, and then the way you measure that success, again, it's not virality. It's about, you know, who, you know, what connections do you have and, uh, and, you know, and how you, um, affect the, the discourse, which more and more is happening on social media. Yeah. And, and affecting the discourse, and this is another thing that I think that people get wrong about think tanks, is not about having people in government read your ideas and say, I want to be, you know, write a bill based on that. Sometimes that happens, but it is more about affecting the larger discourse. It's about framing the conversation uh, around which these things occur. And, and that's where I think is the, the interesting opportunity for think tanks in high politics and high policy going forward. Uh, we effectively have no agenda-setting institutions uh, as a country anymore. I don't think that this is unique to the United States. You know, we were talking earlier about how the GOP literally didn't even write a platform this year. Um, they didn't even say, if elected, here are the things that, that we are going to do. Um, the media you know, tries to set an agenda, but, but you know, by and large, they only set it for one half of the country. Um, because think tanks have this intellectual heterodoxy built in, uh, because think tanks tend to view one another, uh, even across kind of ideological divides, as, as good actors. And, and there are people that, you know, go between different think tanks and, and, and do different kinds of, of work. Uh, I think there's an, insti- uh, there's an institutional opportunity for think tanks to answer or play a role in answering the question that I think is at the, the root of a lot of our um, ennui today, which is, what does it mean to have a good society? And I think that that we should have more think tanks kind of jumping in and saying, like the, the, the kind of view that I think that most of us would take at Mercatus is, look, a, a good society is one where people's individual rights are protected, that's, that's innovative, that's dynamic, that's forward-looking, that is cosmopolitan, that's pluralistic, so that uh, uh, different people in, in different areas can have different policies and, and different statuses that, that support them. Uh, it's one that has a rich, robust civil society. I think that we've got to have a serious discussion about kind of how we rebuild that. And a lot of think tanks are, are starting to work on this space. So a lot of these really big issues that do matter, that should matter, about what the world is going to look like, not just what are the policy you know, things that are being done to, to raise or, or lower the status of this group. I think that these are really important conversations to have. So, you know, one of the things that I think is really um, uh, exemplary of the Trump administration approach to this is we all remember the carrier jobs thing from it was, uh, I think, shortly just after the election, yeah. maybe before he was inaugurated. Before, yeah, I think it was before he was inaugurated. Yeah, he, he, he went to the carrier plants in Indiana and he said, we're going to save these jobs. Well, you know, a few journalists have, have done follow ups on that and found that most of these jobs have actually moved to Mexico and all of that. And then they asked the question, why is it that people you know, still support Donald Trump after all of this? And what he did was he went there and he said, you are not low status people, that you matter. People with a high school education who are earning a decent wage and taking care of the families, these are people who actually matter. You are high status. And, and so I think that, that rather than just making this a status game between whether or not blue-collar workers with carrier plants in Indiana matter, it's articulating a vision of a good society where people like that uh, and, and people with college degrees in Indianapolis and, and people who are, are left behind educationally and, and you know, the whole panoply of 340 million Americans, uh, what is the society that we should be aiming towards? Again, with this emphasis on pluralism, recognizing that, that the policies enacted in Indiana and the policies enacted in New Jersey are probably going to be very different. Yeah, <clears throat> I wish I could share your optimism um, because I, I think what's difficult is going to be for uh, a think tank that has developed a good vision of society to bridge the gap to the high politics, right? Um, sure, maybe 
uh, maybe if you're lucky, Ben Sass will run and take a lot of good ideas from think tanks and et cetera. But how is he going to do in a field that includes Donald Trump, right? Or let's say it doesn't, you know, let's say Ben Sass is running against Matt Gates, right? Um, you know, I guess uh, I'm kind of allowed to, to name names a little bit. Um, you know, it, it's, it's uh, it, it, when politics has become wrestling, uh, you know, WWE style wrestling, um, it, I don't see how you translate that, right? I guess you can write the script for a really, um, uh, really, you know, sort of upstanding character that comes in, but I, I don't see how that character wins. So, so I think where I, where I part with you here is, yeah, politics may be wrestling right now and it may be tribal and, and the rest of it, but the politics of negation only goes for so long. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think that this is an equilibrium that's going to last for another 20 or 30 years. I agree. And, and, and this is a point that, that others have made is you know, what we're going through is, is in a lot of ways, like what happened when the, the, the printing press came into existence yeah. and, and the entire ordering of society was kind of jumbled. Um, yeah. This won't be the equilibrium forever. We're going to learn how to live with social media, with the decommodification of information, with the disintermediation of experts. We, and we are going to have new institutions that emerge to fill those roles. And yeah. I think that, that, and that that's the argument that I'm making. It's, it's not saying that this is something that think tanks are doing right now. But I think it's something very profitable that think tanks can be doing over the course of the next generation, because political parties uh, are not going to stand up to do that. And almost every other elite institution in you know, religion, media, academia are so associated with one side or the other that, that none of them have the ability to kind of uh, uh, bridge across those divides. Yeah. So I totally agree with you that the status quo is not sustainable and that it's something's going to have to give. Um, but you, and I also think that it's a worthwhile thing for think tanks to do, to develop the thinking for what could possibly, you know, uh, be the successor, um, uh, you know, status quo. Uh, that all said, you kind of underlying your optimism is um, sort of the assumption that of progress, right? You can just take a giant step back. The way the way that this is you know, it's not sustainable and something has to give, maybe it gives and it's a giant step backwards. Um, so anyhow, I, I, I don't have much more to say, but I, I don't, I'm not um, super optimistic that some think tank, I mean, I plan about what a good society looks like because we already know what, what that is. And the problem isn't that we don't know what a good society is. It's that we don't have um, uh, shared sense-making anymore, I think is the problem. Um, and you're kind of right that I guess you're saying, you know, all these different institutions from political parties to uh, religious institutions are now associated with one side or the other. And I think implicit in that you're saying, well, think tanks aren't. Think tanks can still be above the fray, but I'm sorry. I mean, um, the people who work at that carrier plant, um, they don't, probably don't see think tankers as on their team, whatever that team, you know, even though that team is kind of a amorphous thing, maybe sometimes it's Bernie, sometimes it's Trump, but you know, they certainly, I don't think, uh, would see them as part of their team. Or no team. 
and, and you know, th that's true as, as far as it goes, but I don't think that there's anything. In, in, in fact, if you if you you know look at, at trust rankings in America, it's basically only the small business sector and the military that in, uh, that have uh, widespread bipartisan support. Um, there there's no other institutions that that uh, have more than sixty percent support across uh, both political parties. Um, but but a couple of things. So one, this is a time where where think tanks are um, you know redeveloping a business model. What you're saying is that we should have a military. Uh, takeover of the nation. Those were your words, not mine, Jerry. Uh, I suppose you're, you're, you're going to advocate for that takeover being done on the blockchain. Right. Um, <laughs> uh, hey, look, I, I think so. So most people in America don't know what think tanks are, what think tanks do. Yeah. Uh, and most people in America don't, uh, you know, read the work of think tanks. Um, and, and that's absolutely fine. Uh, it's it's uh, it's not the case that that you know uh, liberalism broadly construed has ever been a a mass market movement. It's always been something that's been an elite movement. The the, the question is uh, how do we make it appealing more broadly? Uh, not, not just to not just to you know people who work in the the carrier plant, but to the the people who are preaching to them on Sunday mornings, to the people who are are seen as leaders in the community. There are still. That, 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 you know, uh, it's 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 not nihilism all the way down. There are still liked and respected people across the United States. Um, they just happen to not be on the Acela corridor anymore, and that drives yeah. people in the Acela corridor crazy. But I think the question is, you know, what is the viewpoint that that's going to be had more broadly by elites across America, not elites uh, as uh, have have existed for the last fifty years? Yeah, no, I, I think you're totally right that liberalism is an elite-driven. Uh, movement or ideology or uh and the public has kind of come along um partly because of lack of choice right because it's sort of elite driven as you say but what's happening is in large part due to the media environment um you have a democrat democratization of uh, of speech and of, you know, just about everything. And so if it's an elite driven, um, uh, movement, but you have just huge democratization, you know, the elite driven movement kind of don't do well in those. And the new elites that you're saying we should be able to appeal to, um, they're very populist because they're elites because they derive their, um, status from the people. And so they're not going to try to, lead by you know by leading they're going to lead the way you you know jump in front of a parade but yeah. I, 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 again negation only goes so far yeah. uh, the, the, the the politics of negation and nihilism you know it can't go on forever eventually yeah. someone is going to have to say what they're for yeah and and this is where i think that 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 you know i i talk a lot to my colleagues about people's pre-political mental models uh, mm -hmm. And their pre-political normative commitments. Yeah. You know, what is it that, that people want out of? What, what is it that people think is the appropriate role for policy to play? And all of the other important, you know, institutions in society. What's the important role for for the academy? What's the important role for for uh, communities? For for grassroots groups? What's the important role for religion to play? Uh, what's the important role for for businesses, both large and small, yeah. to play? I mean, we've 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 got to talk through all of this. You can't just negate everything forever. And right. and because think tanks can play this kind of medium term game, because think tanks can think about stuff 10 years into the future. Uh, I think that, that, that they, we are better suited than, than any other kind of institution to be thinking about what's the kind of society that we want in 2030. We don't know who the political players are going to be. We don't know who the parties are going to be. But, but how, do we have a, how do we have a real conflict of ideas and, and a real um, a discussion about 
you know, being uh, focused on sustaining the past versus innovating into the future? How do we think about uh, the, the the relationship between production and and distribution? I mean, these are important these are important questions, and we can't just wish them away forever. Yeah, well, I am. I for one am glad that you and the folks at Mercatus are out there doing the Lord's work, um, trying to figure out what the positive agenda is. I'm afraid that, um, however, that uh, as you say, negation can't go on forever. And at some point, somebody's going to have to say they're for something, and that's something that's going to be we need to water the crops with Brano, right? Anyhow, uh, Dan, thank you so much for uh, coming on Tangents. Um, it's been a pleasure to have you. And um, I don't know if we resolved anything, um, but at least I, I hope people get a better sense of what the people like us who develop ideas to try to get policy that affects real people, what you know, how we're thinking about our jobs these days. Like any think tank podcast or event, the uh, baseline is that we raised awareness. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for having me.